this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Tonight, I was going to have an update on Mm -hmm. episode 139, Brian Walsh and his many victims, because there's a lot that's come out about the marriage of Brian and Anna Walsh and stuff. But um, writing my script and everything, I just didn't have time. But I want people to know I will have an update next time. Maybe there'll be even more to tell. Yeah, it's one of those things that's going to keep on giving. One interesting thing I want to say is it's kind of funny. One of his arguments for not going to jail on all his fraud stuff, but being out on bail until his trial was that he had set up some charitable foundation and blah, blah, blah. And I could find no evidence that this actually existed or not, right? But in his recent court hearings, Something came up where his lawyer said that he's a stay-at-home dad. He wasn't working. He wasn't running a charitable foundation or a nonprofit or anything. He was just taking care of his kids, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, wait, then what was that? And I'll have more on that in my update. But I'm like, wait a minute. Because the fact that he was supposedly running this charitable foundation was the reason he was allowed to be out on bail. Yes. But anyway, so there's just his usual lying, lying shit but anyway we'll talk about it next time but you have an update yes i do this is an update on episode 96 sean harrison who was sean harrison or something like that he was a dean of students at uh, boston english and he shot one of his students so i'm not gonna go it you can listen to the the podcast for that but um recently he was sentenced to 18 years in prison after pleading guilty to quote conspiracy to conduct enterprise affairs through a pattern of racketeering activity Mm. and that's what usually called rico on the shows u.s attorney rachel rollins said the level of betrayal and dishonesty exhibited here is astonishing harrison was in a position of trust but was actually a dangerous predator. As the academic dean at at a Boston public high school, he lured and manipulated teenagers into a criminal enterprise that specialized in street terrorism. Harrison was the architect of ruin for an entire generation of promising young lives. I don't think there was the entire generation, no, I but think there were like a few kids. kids. So if you listen to that episode, he was a teacher, but he also was a member of the Latin Kings gang, He recruited some of his students to sell pot for him and stuff in school. In 2018, he was sentenced to up to 26 years in prison for shooting one of his students who did not die, but was, yeah, for the details on that, listen to episode 96. But while in prison for that crime, Sean kept up his Latin Kings gang activity, which led to these new charges. He's going to get credit for the 98 months he's already served in prison. So the 18 years isn't as bad as it could or should be, probably. The article wasn't clear, but maybe that means he's serving them concurrently. He had the 26 years and the 18 years. Who knows? But he's only like 63 now, so he could get out. So young. If you listen to the episode, he's a sociopath or maybe a psychopath. He's pretty bad. He loves to manipulate people and stuff. And he did pretty well for somebody who he didn't really have the credentials for his job, but he still got the job. Mm-hmm. And then he screwed it up. Sometimes all you need is a penis. That's the only credential you need. Yeah, it is. You know? So that was my update. So you've got something? Yeah, I do. 
that's my story for tonight. I got almost all of my information from the Morning Sentinel through newspapers.com, but just a little from the Bangor Daily News. In June 2021, we posted Gerald Goodell Part 1, and finally, nearly two years later, this is Part 2. You don't have to have listened to Part 1 to listen to Part 2, though you may want to, or you may want to after this. He had been charged with murder in June 2021, and I did Part 1, which was one murder he committed, and then the one he was charged with in June 2021, I said, okay, I'll do Part 2 once he goes to trial. Well, with COVID and the fact he was already in prison, so he wasn't going anywhere, and all the courts were backed up because of COVID, they finally got around to doing something in March, two years later. So that's why this took so long. One good thing about it taking so long is when I did part one, the Morning Sentinel, Waterville's newspaper, was not on newspapers.com. And I had to get all my information from back then from the Bangor Daily News, which did an okay job, but the Sentinel had much, many more stories and much more detailed stories. I had been planning to go to the Maine State Library before I did part two. Then not only because of COVID, but they found they had this huge asbestos problem in the library building and had to shut down the library. And it's still shut down, although they've moved to the old DMV building on State Street, but their archives haven't been as accessible because they only let people in a little. And those, you know, genealogy people are crazy. Well, you know? yeah. And even the the Portland papers were not on newspapers.com until recently. Right. So, it's so of, much better. So in any case, part one was about Geraldine Finn's murder. I'm not going to go through her whole story again, because that would just be doing part one over. But I do have a couple little details and corrections when I mention her because now I've had access to the original articles. But why don't we get started? On March 2nd of this year, 2023, Gerald Goodell, 63, was sentenced to 32 and a half years in the Maine State Prison for the 1987 murder of Janet Brochu of Waterville, Maine. Goodell didn't have to go far to serve his sentence. He was still serving 75 years to life for the 1988 murder of Geraldine Finn of which he was convicted in May 1989. Finn's murder, as I said, was covered in episode 102, Gerald Goodall, part one, which, as I said, dropped in June 2021. Goodall pled guilty to Janet Brochu's murder in 2021, but it took this long to get to the sentencing because of the COVID backlog in the main courts. And they probably figured since he was already in the state prison, he wasn't going anywhere. So get the other cases up there first. If you are familiar at all with Goodale, it's probably for Janet Brochu's murder, the one I'm doing tonight. A couple other podcasts have done it because it was a quote-unquote unsolved case. It's interesting how little attention Geraldine Finn's murder got, but maybe it's because it was solved right away and he went to trial within a year after and Janet's wasn't. And that's why hers gets the attention. But poor Geraldine Finn is barely mentioned in some of the stuff about Brochu. The irony of all that is if police have been more on the ball in December 1987 and early 1988 when Janet was killed, Geraldine Finn would not have been murdered eight months later. So let's start from the beginning. At about 2 p.m. on December 23, 1987, Janet Brochu, 20, called her friend Lisa Snow and asked her to meet her at the Winslow, Maine McDonald's at 6 o'clock that night. Janet was a dietitian at Seton Hospital in Waterville, Maine, 
which was right across the river from Winslow. She'd graduated that spring from Kennebec Valley Vocational Technical Institute, now Kennebec Valley Community College, with an associate degree in marketing and management and was working at Seton Hospital, a job she'd held for about a year and a half. And she was doing okay. She was living with her parents in a nice split level in a residential neighborhood in Winslow. And maybe that's the way it was always going to be. Janet's mother felt that since she had diabetes and needed two insulin shots a day, that Janet couldn't live on her own. I'm Mm -hmm. not so sure about that. Maybe Janet would have railed at it later on. But on this night, as I said, she was 20. And likely all that was on her mind was that she had a paycheck in her pocket and was looking forward to a fun night on the town. At 6 o'clock, she met Lisa Snow, 24, and Lisa's younger sister, Linda, at the McDonald's, not too far from Janet's house. Lisa was driving that night. It's not clear if Janet had a car or whether she drove or could drive. I think it's relevant. None of the articles on this, either back then or now, make it clear But even if she did have a car and drove, she wasn't driving that night. The three drove across the bridge to Waterville and picked up Paul DeRoseby, 21, described as a lifelong acquaintance of Janet's, Mm. which I always think is weird. I mean, so he's not a lifelong friend. He's a lifelong acquaintance. She always kind of knew him, but right, but good enough for him to go with them. Waterville is a small city in central Maine on the Kennebec River, about 20 miles north of the state capital, Augusta. If you've listened to us at all, (laughs) you've heard about Waterville (laughs) in several episodes. Yes, it's a hot spot. Right. For a small city, it's kind of a hub of this and its surrounding towns like Oakland, particularly. Yeah. In in 1987, the population was about 17,000, just about a thousand or so more than it has now. Fun fact, earlier in 1987, Waterville City Administrator John Shimura was fired for referring to Waterville as a cultural wasteland in a job interview in Tewksbury, Mass. I'm not sure how the city council found out about that, but they fired him when they found out. But then when they realized you can't really fire somebody for that, they rehired him. So Winslow, across the river from Waterville, at the time had about 8,000 people. Now it's below 5,000 as the mills in both cities closed. Both were mill towns, and like most of Maine's mill towns, the bigger city is paired with a smaller one, and they're separated by a river. There are many, like, twin cities like this. Across Lewis and Auburn. Yeah, lots Madison of we, and... We, we, and and Anson. We don't have to name all of them. Augusta is one of the few where, actually, the city is on yeah. both sides of the river. It's just an interesting thing that is not relevant. And like most of Maine's mill towns in the late 1980s, the mills were just at the beginning of their decline, and the effect on the local economy was already beginning to take hold. There was a big international paper strike going on because these were all paper mills along the river. One thing, true then as it is now, in towns like Waterville and Winslow, and likely all across the United States, is that a couple of days before Christmas, as well as Thanksgiving, are the biggest party nights of the year for people in their 20s. Their friends who have gone off to college or to find jobs or excitement somewhere else come back to celebrate with their families. Everyone goes out to the bars to see their friends. Janet had told her mother when she left that she was going to cash her paycheck and go to McDonald's. Well, this was true. What she didn't tell her mother was that those were just minor elements of what she planned as a solid night of partying with her friends. Janet and her mother Geraldine 
had argued several times recently about Janet going out with this particular group of girlfriends. Janet had diabetes, as I said, mm. and needed insulin injections twice a day to control it. Her mother was concerned that her drinking alcohol... Mm. Something that could affect her condition was going to have a serious impact on her health, mm. put her in the hospital, or even kill her. Janet, however, was 20 and probably figured she was invincible. As it turned out, diabetes would be the least of her worries. Foreshadowing. Yeah, because you have no idea what's going to happen <laughs> here. Janet, Lisa, Linda, and Paul first headed to the new bowling alley on West River Road in Waterville, just outside of town. The bowling alley, which had just opened six months before, was packed, and they couldn't get Elaine to bowl in, so the four decided to kill time while they waited by cruising around. While they were doing that, they went to a convenience store in Oakland, the next town over, so Janet could cash her $70 paycheck, and by the way, that would be $185.99 today. People may not remember, but in the days when ATMs were much less common, and it also took longer for a check deposited at one to clear... Some stores and bars would cash a third-party check. My guess is that some still do. But you could go take your paycheck to a store and... I used to do it at the grocery store. The trip the four friends took to Oakland would have taken them down Kennedy Memorial Drive in Waterville, a drag of fast food restaurants, strip malls, movie theaters, and more. It was where, in episode 62, Janet Baxter went from Oakland to the AMP in Waterville to get cold medicine and was murdered by Albert Cochran. That's not a huge coincidence. As I mentioned before, Waterville is a small city and there aren't that many places to go. In states like Maine, where the bigger cities are far away, these small commercial drags often end up being where the action is, not only for restless young people who don't have much else to do, but for people like Janet Baxter, who needed cold medicine late on a winter night and there was nowhere in her town to get it. The four friends cruised around until about 8 p.m., then went back to the bowling alley. There still weren't any lanes available, so they sat in the lounge and drank. Janet had four mixed drinks and a beer over the next couple of hours, according to her friends. It's not clear if the four ever bowled. A Bangor Daily News story, written much later, citing news stories, said that they bowled, and that's where they met, two guys who play a role in this story, Lou and Jerry, who were bowling in the next lane. But the only news reports I can find from the time that give any details at all are from the Sentinel, and their story never says they were bowling and they met Lou and Jerry bowling. It just said they were drinking in the lounge. Not that it's that big a deal. I may be wrecking some of the dramatic buildup. Jerry was a predator who looked for people like Janet, and I think he would have more luck in the lounge than bowling in a lane he needs to concentrate on what he's there for right he's bowling, and he, and you, he can't right you don't meet that many people if you're just bowling i mean you may talk to the people in the lane next to you but you meet many more people in the lounge which is why i think that that's where they met them around 11 30 p.m the group decided to go into town to a club called t woody's janet according to the others invited Lou and Jerry to join them there. Paul DeRosby stayed at the bowling alley to wait for a woman he knew who worked there to end her shift and said he'd get a ride down to T. Woody's with her. Another bowling alley employee, a guy who was a friend of the group, hitched a ride with the three girls. The four headed downtown to T. Woody's in Lisa's car, Jerry and Lou going in their own cars. T. Woody's was in the basement of a strip mall on what's called the Concourse in the middle of Waterville, a big parking area, vestige of urban renewal. There's just this mm. giant <laughs> wasteland in the middle of the city with this mall. 
So thank you, Urban Renewal. The girls dropped off the bowling alley friend on College Avenue near the club, then joined some other friends at a table in T. Woody's. Lou and Jerry met up with them, too. Janet and Jerry spent the next 10 minutes or so talking. Lou started to feel like Janet and the rest of the group were ignoring him, so he laughed. Poor Lou. Yeah, he laughed. Paul DeRosby had shown up, but only stayed for a few minutes, then left too with his friend from the bowling alley. None of the articles say, but it appears T. Woody's was very crowded and service was slow. The group had been there for about 15 minutes or so when waitress Lynn Daniels made it to the table to take the drink orders of the new arrivals. When she carted Janet, the only member of the group underage, Daniel said she wouldn't serve her because she was underage and that she had to leave. Jerry offered to give Janet a ride home, but she refused and said she just wanted to go outside. But Jerry left with her anyway. By now, it was around 12.15 a.m. Around 10 minutes later, Jerry came back in to get Janet's purse, which she left behind. He told the group he was going to give Janet a ride home. But according to Jerry, when he got back outside, Janet had thrown up in the parking lot. He didn't want her being sick in his car, so he gave her her pocketbook back, and he left. Last he saw, she was standing there in the parking lot. Sure. Janet Brochu was never seen alive again. The group of friends, meanwhile, headed outside about 1.15 a.m. Janet wasn't out there, but they didn't expect her to be. Jerry had told them he was giving her a ride home. Most of the friends headed for home. It's not clear how Linda, Lisa's younger sister, got home, but she must have caught a ride with someone else. Because Lisa was a little detained. A Morning Sentinel story a month later will say she got into an argument about drinking and driving, they don't clarify with whom, and ended up being arrested for disorderly conduct. But a Hmm. look at the December 26th police log in the paper tells a different story. The log says, 2.07 a.m. Thursday, which would have been the wee hours of December 24th, fighting among three women in front of the Zare Zare department store in the concourse ended with the arrests of two. Lisa Snow, 24, of Winslow, and Laura Fisher, 21, of Vassalboro, were arrested for disorderly conduct after they apparently ignored police warnings. So maybe the girls were fighting over whether Lisa was too drunk to drive, but who knows? Meanwhile, Janet's parents, Geraldine and Elbert, were wondering where their daughter was. By the next morning, Christmas Eve, they filed a missing person report with the Winslow Police Department. The police did check with local taxi companies to see if Janet got a ride home. Obviously, she didn't get a ride all the way home because she never showed up there, but they came up empty. None of the stories say this, but it's also conceivable she took off walking. Her house in Winslow was less than a mile and a half away from T. Woody's. Mm. While the day had been warm for December in central Maine, a high of 42 Fahrenheit, which would be 5.5 Celsius for our European friends, the low was 25, which was minus 3.8 Celsius. Janet was wearing a blue jacket, but there's no indication she'd taken a hat or gloves with her. The police, though aren't sure that Janet's a missing person. After all, she's 20, she had cashed her paycheck, and she'd been squabbling with her mother. Geraldine and Albert knew better. Janet needed insulin injections twice a day. And it was Christmas. Their only child wasn't going to just take off. This would have been a good opportunity for one of the reporters covering the story to ask about or mention whether Janet had a car, even if she didn't drive that night. I can't see a 20-year-old just taking off without bringing her car. No shit. And if she didn't bring her car with her, then how did she just take off? In none of the stories about her ever 
does it ever mention whether she drives or had a car or had access to a car? The first story about Janet's disappearance didn't appear in the newspaper until the December 29th morning Sentinel, five days after she disappeared, though with Christmas the previous Friday and then a weekend, it's understandable. Geraldine Brochu, Janet's mother, told a reporter from the Morning Sentinel, which is Waterfield's newspaper, about the arguments the two had about drinking. She said, Jan goes out with these girls and I don't approve. She's unhappy. She wants to be on her own, but she can't because of her diabetes. She also thinks her daughter's recent unhappiness and drinking may have been because she was fighting with her boyfriend who worked nights and wasn't spending enough time with her. The Sentinel reporter apparently didn't ask who the boyfriend or friends were or track them down to talk to them. <laughs> Detective Lee Gilbert of the Waterville Police Department said they had some idea of the identity of the two men who Janet left the club with. The first reports were that she left with Lou and Jerry. It didn't come out till later that Lou actually had left earlier. Detective Gilbert told the Sentinel, though, that Janet was an adult and may have left of her own volition, but it was a concern because of her diabetes and the fact it was Christmas, so they were treating it as a missing person case. Or as everyone else says, for whatever reason, missing persons case, and I never understand why you have that extra S, so I don't say it. Anyway, <laughs> Detective Gilbert declined repeatedly to say whether police thought there was any foul play. My impression from the early newspaper stories is police were concerned because she needed insulin, not that anything had happened to her. And one interesting thing is I was looking through the police logs from around then and maybe a week after she disappeared, somebody reported, I think from a pharmacy, then a medical bag with syringes and insulin had been stolen. And hmm. I almost wonder if police are like, oh. Maybe Janet or whatever guy she's with stole that. And I don't know. I don't have any reason to support that. But it's very clear from the constant, constant mention of her being a, quote, severe diabetic in all the stories and by the police that I think the police were concerned because they're afraid she gets sick, but did not think that anything had happened to her. Gilbert told the Sentinel that police were not looking for her in, quote, any particular area, unquote, which tells me that they were not looking for her. <laughs> no. At all. He said the department listed Janet with the National Crime Information Center, which was described in the story as a coast-to-coast -coast police network that will alert Waterville if she had contact with any police. And remember, of course, this was pre-internet for the most part, and most computer networks were internal, like a police network would have just been police linked to other police and yeah. stuff like that. Janet was described in the article as wearing a blue jacket, five foot six with brown hair and brown eyes. The photo that ran with the story, likely her high school graduation photo, shows a short Dorothy Hamill-type hairdo, very popular at the time. In fact, I had one myself. But there's no more detail to the description that would be helpful. She could be anyone. Brown hair, brown eyes, five foot six and a blue jacket. I know. Meanwhile, according to the Sentinel, Janet's parents, Geraldine and Albert Brochu, were maintaining an anguished vigil through the holidays for their only child. Oh. Her Christmas present still sat unopened under the tree as New Year's approached. Geraldine definitely sounded like she suspected foul play, no matter what the police thought. She said, if she's all right, I don't care if she's gone two months, but whether the ending is happy or not, I want to see the ending. Two days later, on New Year's Eve, a front page article in the Sentinel said police described their investigation into Janet's appearance as a, quote, spread eagle giraffe. Oh, 
Right. I don't want to keep you hanging, but nowhere in the story does it explain what they mean by that metaphor. <laughs> it's a weird metaphor. Police said, on one hand, she's an adult who may have left on her own. On the other hand, she is severely diabetic, and it's not clear if she had insulin or syringes with her. They say it's not clear if she had those. Her mother said she did not. The police had no reason to believe she met with foul play, but no reason to believe she hadn't. So there you go, spread eagle giraffe. As a writer, that's the exact metaphor I would have come up with. The only new thing in that article was that the police, a week after she disappeared, admitted they were flummoxed. One thing I want to say, too, is I don't want to go into a whole thing about it, but as this was happening, there was a much story that at the time was considered much bigger. Police got into a chase with a young guy that went through a couple towns and ended in Fairfield, where they ended up shooting him not killing him. He ended up paralyzed. He was unarmed. In fact, when I was working at the Sentinel, I can't remember what year it was. I want to say 2015, that guy finally died. His name was Stephen Eaton. And that seemed to be a much bigger story. And the same reporter, Kim Layton, who's a guy, Kim, not a woman, Kim, who was covering that story. And this detective, Lee Gilbert, was in the photos from that police chase and everything. So he was covering that case. So I have a feeling Janet, poor Janet's case was just not... And even though the parents were absolutely sure, everything pointed to her not taking off on her own. I think the police were just, I know people take off and most people who are reported missing show up or are found. But I think that police should also be geared enough so that when there are certain red flags, she didn't take any of her stuff. I know. She's diabetic and needs insulin twice a day. She's never done anything like this before. She's a good girl, even though she's been drinking a little. She always comes home with all that stuff. She's not the person at risk to just take off, that they should take it seriously. Police said that on Wednesday, December 30th, they conducted an undercover operation in downtown Waterville to see if they could come up with who the two guys, Lou and Jerry, were that she'd left with. But apparently they (laughs) came up empty on that. And I'm picturing a couple <laughs> cops trying to pretend like they're hip with it. Kids going into saying, the bar. Going into T. Woody's and saying, hey, have you guys seen Lou and Jerry tonight? I'm looking for Lou and Jerry. Police Chief David Veneziano told the Sentinel, we don't have a lead to go on. Oh. Investigator Lee Gilbert said, we're in the same shape as we were a week ago. It's as she vanished from the face of the earth. This story describes Geraldine and Albert as Janet's adoptive parents which always bugs me, and I used to tell reporters that you really only include that if it's somehow relevant. The fact that she was adopted as a baby has no relevance to whether they're her parents or not. They're her parents. It says that in every story, and then it really annoys me that even the most recent stories it have that. And I'm like, these most recent stories are written by people who I used to say, don't do that. Not now they're doing it just to spite you. I'm sure they are. In any case, Geraldine, her mother, said, They say there's always hope. That's what we're living on, and a prayer. By January 5th, police had talked to Lou and Jerry, the two men who tagged along with the group from the bowling alley to T. Woody's. After talking to the men, the police conclusion was that Janet was likely alone when she disappeared. They tracked Lou down by looking for him at the bowling alley. Apparently, he led them to Jerry. No one brings up the fact that the two men didn't come forward after there had been stories in the paper about Janet missing, And that two guys, Lou and Jerry, were among the last to see her and police couldn't find them. But whatever, maybe they don't read the papers. (laughs) Gilbert, the detective, said the two men were very cooperative. And they said neither of them drove Janet anywhere. Mm -hmm. 
The story says police initially thought Janet may have left T. Woody's with one of the men, but now know the men left separately and both left without Janet. As we know, Lou left in a huff about half an hour earlier than Janet was last seen. Jerry said when he last saw her, she was standing in the parking lot. The Sentinel and the police seemed to take Jerry's story at face value. Detective Gilbert said he wasn't going to put forward any theory given the recent developments. And by recent developments, I think he means what Lou and Jerry said because there were no other developments. Oh my goodness. Police had also been in contact with Janet's, quote, adoptive uncle in Colorado with whom she was close to see if he'd heard from her, but he hadn't. On January 7th, Waterville investigators rushed to Biddeford, a 90-minute drive down I-95 to the south, when they heard that Janet Brochu may be in that city. Coincidentally, she was born there, but her parents adopted her as an infant, and they lived in Waterville, so she had no ties to Biddeford. But they heard she may be there. As it turned out, it wasn't her. In a confusing story, Detective Lee Gilbert told the Sentinel he'd been alerted by Biddeford police that a woman matching Janet's description had been located in Biddeford. Gilbert said... She followed one of the Biddeford cruisers to the police station and said she didn't know her name or anything about her past. But shortly after that, she was ruled out by Gilbert as being Brochu. She was then identified through a story in the Biddeford paper, and I guess she found out who she was and what her past was. <laughs> Gilbert said, the descriptions matched. It was awful close, but not the right girl. So apparently somebody with amnesia... <laughs> Told, and brown hair and brown eyes. Right. Told the Biddeford police she had amnesia. So they said, oh, there's that missing girl up in Waterville. Maybe this is her. And so Gilbert rushed down to Biddeford to see if it was. On January 16th, three weeks after Janet disappeared, a short Sentinel story said there were no new leads in the case, but police were continuing to do interviews and follow the few leads they had. They said besides law enforcement network, they'd established a medical network in case she tried to get medical help for her diabetes. It would have been an interesting story to elaborate on how they did that and what was involved, but apparently no one at the Sentinel thought it would be. Gee, it's just like when I worked there. <laughs> as far as I can tell, at this point, three weeks after she disappeared, no other papers had picked up the story, including the Kennebec Journal in Augusta, wow. 20 miles to the south. That all changed five days later on January 21st. A Sentinel story by Kim Layton who'd been the main reporter covering Janet's disappearance, was picked up by the KJ as well. It said there were promising new leads in the case, but the police weren't talking about them. Probably not a coincidence, but Detective Lee Gilbert said that the investigation now included the Maine State Police and the mm. Attorney General's mm. office. There's no indication why they brought those guys in, what prompted them to begin taking Janet Brosh's disappearance more seriously, but something must have. Whether it was pressure from the parents, whether the parents knew somebody who pressured the police or something, we'll never know. Hmm. But, but almost a month after Janet disappeared, they finally started treating it like it was something that needed to be investigated. The story said that Detective Gilbert refused repeatedly to discuss the new leads, quote, or the reason for bringing two additional investigative agencies hmm. into the case, contending any comments might jeopardize the investigation. Then, Gilbert did say a bunch of stuff, even though he said he couldn't say anything. <laughs> he said information is inconclusive as to whether Janet was dead or alive, but added that an extensive police search could find no evidence she tried to buy syringes or get insulin, 
which you need a prescription for, which none of the stories mentioned, or accessed her bank account to replenish the estimated $40 she had left when she was last seen. Gilbert said, The longer it goes on, the worse it looks. It's disquieting that someone could have so many friends in the area and just disappear. Hmm. One theory that the Sentinel says had now been scuttled was that Janet had somehow fallen into the Kennebec River while crossing the Two Cent Bridge, which is a pedestrian bridge that links Waterville to Winslow and is a couple blocks from T. Woody's. Mm -hmm. Gilbert said they scuttled that theory because they found out Janet was afraid of heights. That's all well and good, but if it were me and I was walking home at 12.30 a.m. in December, I wouldn't be crossing the Two Cent Bridge. I'd opt for the Waterville-Winslow Bridge, which is the main traffic bridge across the river and is about a block away from the two-cent bridge and actually closer to Janet's house. It's well lit and has sidewalks, and it's not that high up off the water, although the two-cent bridge really isn't either. Neither are scary bridges. I'll put photos on the website. Also, to fall off the two-cent bridge, which is a pedestrian bridge that was built for the mill workers, and it was called the two-cent bridge because you used to have to pay a toll of two pennies to go across it. It has iron railings that I, if I'm remembering right, are chest high, and it's still the original. I mean, it's been refurbished and stuff. It would be hard to fall off that bridge without, you know, without... You'd have to jump off it. Yeah. Yeah. And frankly, I think the fact that they scuttled that theory because she's afraid of heights is a little... um, They should scuttle it because it's dumb. Or they should be dragging the river. Well, it might have been frozen at that. It was in January, right? Yeah, this was January, but it wouldn't have been frozen yet. Lee Gilbert also said the afraid of heights things. This is the only reason he scuttled that theory. Mm. The new evidence made him scuttle it, too. The new evidence, the article points out, that he refused to discuss. The story says... Gilbert expressed a measure of confidence that the new information the police are probing may lead to a break in the case, which has baffled authorities since it began. I'm going to say it didn't baffle authorities. I think they just didn't give any attention to it until now. It's not that baffling. No, no, it's not at all baffling. She left a fucking bar with some guy. And I think the new evidence is that somebody said we need to look pretty hard at Jerry. Also significant, Geraldine Brochu, who had been the Sentinel's best friend up until now, told them she had been told not to talk to the newspaper anymore. Hmm. She said, I was asked not to answer any more questions from the press. I don't have any comments on anything. But, like Lee Gilbert, even though she said she wasn't going to talk, she did have one or two things to say. (laughs) She told the reporter she was on her way to see her lawyer. She wouldn't say who issued the gag order. The story also had a timeline with it that had been put together through what it said were extensive interviews with police and Brochu's family and friends. Much of which I told you about what happened that night is taken from that timeline. It's interesting that none of these friends or the timeline information appears in any of the previous Sentinel stories. Who the friends were, their ages, what they said they did, a lot of the details of what they did, it was all in this timeline. But none of it was in any Hmm. previous stories. I think that's really odd. I don't know if the police told them not to print any of it, which seems weird to me. Or if there was some other reason, like the editors and possibly even the reporter were following the police's lead, that it was just a girl who took off. I can see a prissy, no imagination editor saying not to put that stuff in the stories because if she just took off, having all these things about the friends saying what they did that night and everything would look dumb. Not to disparage that type of editor. 
And maybe hmm. that's not what happened, but I've seen it happen before. I can't see a reporter doing all that interviewing that they claimed they did and then not running the stuff until this point. I've gone through all the Sentinels in the month between when she disappeared and when this story ran, not just doing a keyword search, but actually going through every edition yeah. of the newspaper. And I can't find any stories that name the friends or anything mm. else. They never name who this boyfriend she was unhappy with was or say whether police talk to him or anything else. But anyway, yeah. as often happens with stories where police say they have big new leads and fresh eyes looking at it and all that kind of stuff, nothing happened. Mm. There's not one newspaper story about Janet Brochu for two months. The next article appears on Saturday, March 19th, with the headline, Brochu Found in River. Mm. Winslow woman had been missing for three months. Janet's nude and frozen body have been found at 6.30 a.m. Friday, March 18th in the Sebastocook River in Pittsfield. The story said he owned the dam on the river, but it's actually a dam that's owned by the Public Works Company in Pittsfield. He was probably the guy or whatever who maintained the dam. Her body, covered in algae, was found washed up against a metal grate that protected the hydropower generators of the dam. Were you going to say where Pittsfield was? In... Yes. Okay, yes. sorry, never mind. Pittsfield is north of Waterville, maybe about 20 miles. Mm. The Sebastocook mm. River does connect to the Kennebec in Winslow, but they're both flowing east. Yeah. So it's not like somebody threw her in the river. And she washed. And she... Right. It took them two hours to retrieve her body from what the story calls the power-generating lagoon, similar mm. to a swimming pool. Yeah. And, the, and the actual official name of that is the Dam Reservoir. I know a lot about dams because of the book I'm writing. So. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, I can't either. They identified her body, it says, through jewelry and dental records. And mm. since she was partially decomposed, Lieutenant Charles Love of the Maine State Police said more investigation would have to be done by the state medical examiner to determine if she was murdered. He did say her death was suspicious. Yeah. He added, we have not ruled out foul play. Oh, We're good. seriously considering that. He cautioned that until the medical examiner determined a cause of death, that police had no grounds to proceed on the case as a homicide. Not to tell the guy how to do his job, <laughs> but yes, you do have grounds to proceed as a homicide. A body found in a river. Without her clothes on after she disappeared. Just saying... <sighs> And maybe the reporter was paraphrasing him incorrectly. It's I like, don't what know. grounds do you need? Right. The Banker Daily News on the same day reported that Lieutenant Love told them that medical examiner Ronald Troy had not been able to determine a cause of death because the body was too decomposed, although it was still intact, and they were now doing toxicology tests and that there were hopes that a cause of death would be determined by the next week. Of course, I don't have to say it, but I will, that at the time... DNA testing and its use as evidence as part of a criminal investigation was still in its very, very, very infancy and unheard of in Maine. Yeah. On top of it, the news stories, particularly the Sentinel, were continuing to pound away at the severe diabetic angle. They mentioned often in the lead that she was a severe diabetic and that could have been okay, this girl is going to be sick and needs her insulin. But I feel it was also a way, even if the reporters didn't realize it, the police were pushing that as a way Like, to oh, say, she passed out and fell in the water. Right, exactly. Hmm. I think the police were giving them the impression, reporters the impression that they believe she could have died from diabetic shock or something because of the drinking. Because they do mention the drinking and mm, the diabetes. Of course they do. 
Though that doesn't really explain where her clothes went or how she got in the river. Lieutenant Love told the BDN that based on the missing person report, they believed Janet had been in the river since the night she disappeared. Mm. Pittsfield Police Chief Spencer Havey, who Sentinel reporter Kim Layton pointed out has 24 years of experience, Mm. told the Sentinel, Mm. I believe she's been in the water for months. The new body indicates that something is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. There would be some articles of clothing left on the body, even if she was in the river for months. And I think what he means is, if it had been some innocent reason she had fallen in the river, there's she'd still have yes. Lieutenant Love did say that they had seized and searched a vehicle early in the investigation, and some of the evidence gained in that search is now being reevaluated. And I'm going to say, by early in the v- investigation, he means when state police got involved, in January, nearly a month after she disappeared, not early, like the week after she yeah. disappeared. He wouldn't say who the car belongs to, but I'm going to hazard a guess. Uh, it's not really a guess. I think I know and you know that it was Jerry's car, mm-hmm. the last person who claimed to have seen her alive. Jerry had plenty of time to clean out the car. Too bad no one took her disappearance seriously from the start. Lieutenant Love said, even if foul play is determined, an arrest is not imminent. We're a long way from that, he said. He said they will be re-interviewing the group she was with that night. And I say, good for them. The BDN also said her body was found after an extensive search and investigation, which I take issue with. Granted, the BDN wasn't writing stories about it, so they just had the police's word that there was an extensive search and investigation. I guess there was a search, kind of, in an investigation that doesn't appear extensive, but that's it. And the only reason I'm harping away at this is because it's more propaganda. And later, at the end of the story, when all the cops are patting themselves on the back, everybody seems to forget that if they had done their jobs right, Geraldine Finn would not have been killed in August of 1988. My belief is that the Waterville Police Department did a cursory investigation but blew it off in the first couple weeks as a girl taking off. And yes, they had other stuff going on. But that doesn't mean they couldn't take it seriously. Then, for whatever reason, almost a month after she disappeared, they got state police involved. And then things became serious. Again, we'll never know why state police became involved. Paul DeRosby, one of the friends that Janet was with the night she disappeared, and who the Sentinel weirdly identifies, and they do every time he's mentioned as a lifelong acquaintance. Mm-hmm. And maybe he said, well, I wouldn't really call myself a friend. I guess we're acquaintances. I don't want you to say I'm a friend because I don't want to, whatever. Anyway, he told the Sentinel, it's terrible. There had to be foul play involved. Lisa Snow, the friend who drove that night, said, I'm not glad that they did find her like that, but at least we now know. Geraldine Brochu, who once again the Sentinel unnecessarily describes as Janet's adoptive mother, had no comment. Janet's obituary appeared in the Sentinel that same day and was very short. It noted she was born April 12, 1967 in Biddeford and was the adopted daughter of Albert and Geraldine Thibodeau Brochu. She graduated in 1985 from Winslow High School and in 1987 from KVVTI. She was a member of the Heart of Maine Square Dancers Mm -hmm. and a former member of the Waterville Stamp Club. Besides her parents, survivors were her maternal grandmother, Marie Thibodeau of Waterville, several aunts, uncles, and cousins. The Bangor Daily News followed up on Sunday, a couple days after her body was found, with Detective Richard Fippen, who said a detective continued to investigate over the weekend, but there were no new leads and no suspects. On March 22nd, 
My old pal Jerry Boyle, at the time <laughs> a columnist at the Sentinel, wrote about Janet's death in his column. Well, actually, he wrote about an uproar in Pittsfield over a male strip show. But at the end of the column, he wrote, back at Ken's restaurant, because he was talking to people at Ken's restaurant about the male strip show. Back at Ken's restaurant, the talk over the coffee cups that day had been about Janet Brochu, the young Waterville woman whose bruised nude body had been pulled from the Sebastocook River that morning. Karen Bell, the woman Jerry had been talking to about the strippers, pointed to his notebook and said, some people are sicker than what this is right here. In other words, there are worse things, sicker things going on than male strippers. Exactly. And maybe Jerry's taking some writer's license because so far he's the only one who said her body was bruised. And it's hard to tell with decomposition if there are bruises or not. I'm just saying. Anyway, I'll put that column on our website, too, so you can read the whole thing. It will be in PDF form, probably. It's mostly about the strippers, as I said, but not about Janet, but it's classic Jerry Boyle. The next Sentinel story about Janet Brochu appeared on Thursday, March 24th, nearly a week after her body was found. It was short. The headline, Lid Placed on Brochu Probe. Since it's Hmm. only five paragraphs, I'll read the whole thing. Of course, the shortness of the story doesn't keep Kim Layton from putting his byline on it. (laughs) State police, citing a sensitive investigation, have clamped a tight lid on their probe of the death of Janet Brochu, whose nude body was pulled from the Sebastocook River last Friday, three months after she vanished. Maine State Police Lieutenant Charles Love refused Wednesday to disclose the cause of Brochu's death. We're not going to release anything further at this time, said Love. We don't want to take the chance of releasing any information that would hamper the investigation. Brochu 20 of Winslow was discovered in Pittsfield, washed up against a metal grate in the Sebastocook River. Mm-hmm. She had been missing since December 23rd after she left T. Woody's in the concourse, according to Waterville police and witnesses. Love declined to answer any questions about the cause of death or police have a suspect in what Love termed earlier a suspicious death. He said criminal experts are expected to huddle next week to determine a course of action. We're meeting with the attorney general's office and the lab people to evaluate what we have and what we need and if we can move on that, Love said. On March 29th, a dive team made up of state police and Maine Warden Service divers searched the river above where Janet's body was found for clues, including jewelry and clothing, the Sentinel reported. The BDN reported that Lieutenant Love said they were looking for personal items of Janet's or anything else that could help them figure out what happened. The place they searched was upstream from where Janet's body was found about a quarter mile. Lieutenant Love said it made the most sense that her body was tossed from the Interstate 95 bridge, which crosses the Sebastocook River about a quarter mile from the dam where she was found. They'd set up their command center at the Pinnacle Ski Hut next to the Waverly Bridge, and the reporter, Karen Ranau, said the divers boarded boats from about 35 feet from where Janet's body was found that made their way upstream. Lieutenant Love refused to say if they'd found anything. The divers were contending with high water, cold temperatures, the water was about 35 degrees, and low visibility. Anyone can tell you that that time of year, the snow is melting and the rivers are running fast and cold in central Maine. The Sebastocook River originates in Lake Wasakeg in Dexter and flows west and south for 75 miles until it meets with the Kennebec and Winslow. It's a long, fast river that has a big watershed. It's not one of the big four, you know, rivers in Maine, but it is a fairly large, substantial river. Love said that as the search continued, police hoped the water level would go down and the visibility would clear up. The search in the river continued for days, 
and they did find some stuff, but police said it was probably not related to Brochu's death. Lieutenant Love told the Sentinel that the search was progressing slowly. He said, The diving team has covered the whole area nearly inch by inch, and so far they've found an old safe, an old gun, and a man's shoe. Mm-hmm. He said they covered the area both under the northbound and southbound lanes of I-95 and intended to start moving towards the dam in the coming days. And what wouldn't come out until 2023 was mm-hmm. they apparently did find something, but it's not clear because yeah, I don't want to ruin the drama, but it, but its significance may not have been known in 1988. More on that later. Lieutenant Love also said that investigators have met with members of the state police crime lab and attorney general's office to discuss general strategy, but wouldn't say what they'd come up with. Mm. On April 5th, a letter to the editor appeared in the Sentinel with the headline, Why Publish Grizzly Details About Body Mm. Found in River? To the editor, the unnecessary publishing of the sordid details surrounding the condition of Janet Brochu's body when it was found was tasteless and insensitive. <sighs> While a small portion of your readership might thrive on grisly <laughs> details, we would have appreciated the right to remember Janet as she was when she was alive. In search of a sensational story, the Sentinel has only demonstrated its disregard for the prolonged suffering of her family and friends. Furthermore, the unnecessary obsession with continually reporting that Janet was the adopted daughter of the Brochus mm. was unnecessary. I agree with that part. Did you write that? No. Parents are those who nurture, care for, and love a child regardless of birthright, and no one could deny that the Brochus love their child. Constantly drawing attention to this fact only made the Brochu family's relationship sound second class. Respect for a human life does not mean stripping it of its dignity and death. Mm. The Sentinel has only added to our sorrow. And it was signed, Patty Odenkrantz, Mary Pressy, Margaret Jameson, Pat Joller, Terry Bouchard, Debbie Harding, Betsy Towner, Ida Radzowitz, Evelyn Gogg, Linda Joseph, Mary Robinson, Deborah Meter, Mary Jane Perry, and Ellen Treadwell, all of Fairfield. Wow. So a lot of them. So my guess is since it's of Fairfield, it might be people from Kennebec Valley. Oh. I agree on the adopted thing, as you already know. I do think it's necessary as far as transparency and stuff to explain the decomposition and stuff so people will know about the evidence. People need to understand what's going on in an investigation. Well, it may seem grisly and everything. Understanding what happens to a body in those situations is important to understanding what's going on. And it also is grisly. And I don't think you need to sugarcoat what a crime is because it's easy for people to not understand, especially in the future when people are maybe advocating for some guy's innocence or something. I think people need to understand how bad it was. As I always used to say when I worked at the newspaper, we're not writing about Disney World. You know, I mean, when you're writing about murder, you can you use euphemisms to. and kind of gloss it over, but people need to know what happened to her. Right. Aside from that letter, no information about the investigation appeared in the paper for almost a month. Hmm. On April 22nd, the headline in the Sentinel was no new brochure clues. Mm. Police are stymied. The police had searched the Sebastocook River for two weeks, and they said they found nothing. They weren't talking about any other aspect of their investigation. 
Lieutenant Love told the Sentinel, The only thing we know for sure is that she didn't get into that predicament all by herself. But as to who or how, we're stymied. He said at this point the investigation had, quote, no real direction. He said he's not operating on any particular theory and hasn't called in any type of special investigation team to help. There wasn't another story until a month later, on May 21st. A page one but very short story in the Sentinel had the headline, Nothing new to report in brochure death investigation. And Lieutenant Love again says he has nothing new to report and adds, <laughs> I, I wish I did. He mm. said investigators are working closely with the Waterville and Winslow Police Departments and following leads. They ask that anyone with any information, no matter how insignificant it may seem to call them. On June 2nd, Sentinel reporter Kim Layton was back on the beat with a story that had the headline, No New Leads Indicated mm. in Brochure Investigation. In the story, Layton writes, Maine State Police Lieutenant Charles Love said Wednesday that despite a five-month investigation, he could offer no evidence-based hope of solving the case. Lieutenant Love said, We're not giving up on the case, but we have nothing more than we had two months ago. Layton, the reporter, wrote, Love, who commands the Maine State Police Investigation Division, continues to refuse to release the cause of death or comment on other details of the case. This includes any evidence taken from the car they seized or results of a lie detector test that they gave to the car's owner or the name of the car's owner. Layton adds that the information about the search and the lie detector test were given to the Sentinel by reliable sources. He also points out that Janet Brochu's case brings to five the number of suspicious deaths, four women and one man, that have gone unsolved in Central Maine since the mid-1970s, though he doesn't elaborate. Hmm. As far as the guy goes, he was probably referring to Robert McKee, a teacher who was moonlighting as a gas station attendant and shot to death in Newport about half an hour north of Waterville in 1975, or possibly hmm. Thomas Huntley, who was killed in his Winslow home in April 1979, which was then set on fire in an attempt to cover up the murder. As for the women... He was possibly referring to Ellen Cho of Pennsylvania, shot in the head on her way to a new job in Bangor in mm. June 1975. Her remains found off Old County Road in Newport in 1977. He was likely referring to Janet Baxter, who I mentioned earlier, killed in November 1976. Her body found in Norwich Walk. He was probably not referring to Pauline Rourke, who disappeared in December 1976, the night before she was to talk to police about Baxter's disappearance and mm -hmm. her boyfriend Albert Cochran's possible involvement. I say probably not because her disappearance got so little attention at the time. It had two paragraphs, if I remember right, just to say she was missing, even though police determined from the beginning it was suspicious and she had probably been murdered. He may have been talking about Blanche Kimball, stabbed to death in Augusta in 1978, but another one who didn't get a lot of attention, possibly because she was in her 70s. He may have been talking about Geraldine Towers, last seen at the Gateway Lounge in Newport in October 1982, when she was dropped off by her father. She's never been found, but police officials believe she was the victim of a violent death. There was Rita St. Peter, who was last seen alive walking over the Anson-Madison Bridge at 12.30 a.m. on July 5th, 1980. Her dead body, severely beaten and then crushed to death by being run over by a car, found on Campground Road in Anson weeks later. I know that's more than four women, like Kim Layton said, but that's just some of the unsolved crimes in the 10 years leading up to Janet Brochu's death that are within what the Sentinel would consider central Maine, maybe a half hour or so radius of Waterville. 
and as I said, still unsolved at the time. Mm. So it didn't include, for instance, the still unsolved 1971 murder of Colby College student Catherine Murphy in Waterville and so many others. Mm. Some of those I listed have been solved as cold cases, though not many. We discussed Baxter and Rourke in episode 62, which is about Albert Cochran and all the people he killed and got away with, and Blanche Kimball in episode 28. Janet Brosh's name was not mentioned again in the newspaper until August. And as tough as Janet Brosh's case was for them to solve, Jerry, the guy who supposedly left her in the parking lot at the concourse, ended up making it easier for them, in a way. On Tuesday night, August 9th, 1988, Geraldine Finn a 23-year-old certified nurse's aide, mm-hmm. went out with two of her co-workers from Woodlawn Nursing Home in Skowhegan to have drinks at Pete and Larry's, which at the time was the bar at the Holiday Inn in Waterville. Geraldine didn't usually go out. This was her first night after working six months that she had gone out with co-workers. Aww. It had been a hot day with a high of 88 degrees, so the cool bar probably felt good. Geraldine didn't drink, and she wasn't drinking alcohol that night. But she was enjoying the company of her friends, Ruth Small and Janet Levesque. Around 8.15, their attention was caught by a man who was circling the parking lot in a blue SUV. SUV wasn't in the lexicon then, so it's sometimes called a truck and sometimes called a car Mm -hmm. outside the window. He was gesturing for them to come outside. One of Geraldine's friends thought she recognized him, so the three finally went out to see what he wanted because he was being very persistent. (laughs) When they got to his vehicle, the man was naked. Mm. He asked Mm -hmm. them if they wanted to go swimming with him. They they declined and went back into the bar. Mm. About 20 minutes later, the man, this time with his clothes on, came into the bar and he sat with Geraldine and her friends. He was smart this time and didn't give his real name. He told them his name was John. He was a white (laughs) guy in his late 20s, early 30s. The girls later said he was about 5'10". He had brown hair and brown eyes. He had a tattoo on his left forearm in the shape of a diamond with a line through it. He invited himself to sit down where he drank beer and chatted with the women for the next two hours. Some recent articles, as well as in our episode 102, said Geraldine danced with John. This isn't true. It was another newspaper at the time's misreading of the original story, which had a pronoun that didn't match the subject, which is a great example of why people should learn to structure sentences correctly. It was Geraldine's friends who danced with each other into one song around 1045. When they got back to the table, both Geraldine and John were gone, but Geraldine's pocketbook was still on the table. Janet Levesque found Geraldine sitting outside in John's SUV, at the time described as just Chevy Blazer, but it turned out it was a Ford Bronco. Geraldine told Janet she was getting a ride home with John and to have Ruth, the other friend, call her in the morning. But Ruth didn't hear from Geraldine the next morning. She'd never come home. That was totally out of character, a total deviation, the police told the Morning Sentinel. Geraldine was a hard-working, church-going girl who stayed in contact with her close friends and family, and this was even in before the days when it was easy with cell phones. She lived with her parents, and her mother told the Morning Sentinel on August 11th that this was the longest Geraldine had ever been away from home and had not been in touch. She'd gone on a trip with some friends to Boston earlier that summer, a two-day trip, and had called her mother when she got to Boston had called her mother when she left her home, had called her mother from the road on the way home. Geraldine even called her mother twice a night from her night shift at the nursing home. Her parents had moved to Skowhegan in 1987 from Saugus, Massachusetts, and paid attention to where their 10 kids were. A few years earlier, their 15-year-old son had died in a car accident. They had moved to Maine because they thought it would be safer. 
That's so sad. On top of it, Jerry had a respiratory ailment that she'd been hospitalized for in the past. It would sometimes make it hard for her to breathe, especially if she was under stress. So they were doubly concerned. On August 10th, Geraldine's parents reported her missing to the police. The police, of course, weren't ready to say foul play was involved, but were concerned enough that it was out of character for her to be missing. Her hmm. mother, though, was certain it was foul play. She told the Sentinel, She's very dependable. I never have to worry about her. I don't believe she went willingly into a car with a stranger. Interestingly, the early stories about Jerry missing Geraldine, and it's confusing because there's her... There's Jerry, Gerald Goodell, and then Janet's mom. On top of it, Janet's mom is named Geraldine's. But the early stories about Geraldine missing didn't mention Janet Brochu's very similar disappearance. That, of course, would change fast. On Sunday, August 14th, Geraldine's body was found partially clothed and in a watery gully at the end of some woods off Route 201 in Snohegan, about 12 miles north of Waterbill. Her body was too decomposed because it was hot and humid out to tell if she'd been raped. And as we know, someone can be raped with no physical evidence to show for it anyway. But they could tell she had been strangled, Lieutenant Love told the Sentinel. And if you want to know more about Geraldine's case, listen to episode 102. For the overall story, you have to listen to that episode. There's some crazy shit. The police were quick on this one. They arrested Gerald Goodall. 29 at his Waterville home the day after Geraldine's body was found. Lieutenant Love said they found him based on his description and that of the Chevy Blazer he was driving, even though it was a turned out to be a Ford Bronco. My guess is actually that they'd had him in their sights ever since they started investigating the Janet Brochu murder, and now that he did it again in such a similar way, they knew they had him. The reporters were quick too. The front page Sentinel story. The next day connects a lot of dots between Geraldine's murder and Janet Brochu's. Under the big banner headline in the August 16th Morning Sentinel, Suspect Held in Finn Murder, there's a sidebar comparing all the things the two cases have in common, including the fact that both women had health issues and worked in healthcare, neither of which is really relevant. Yes. Healthcare is the biggest employer in that area. The thing I found most irksome about the similarity story is the ending. Remember, Kim Layton, the reporter, is a guy. He Mm. writes, Neither were sexually sophisticated or familiar figures in Waterville's nightlife scene, according to family, friends, and employers. He says it's according to family, friends, and employers, but this is the only time it's ever mentioned in any of the stories. Does that even mean or have anything to do? Well, let me keep going here. With little exposure to the singles bar scene, Brochu and Finn appear to have been charmed by their abductors, Mm. as suggested by the fact that both women left their pocketbooks behind on bar tables the night they disappeared. And I want to say there's an assumption that Janet Brochu willingly went with Jerry when she she had, had a lot to drink and she was diabetic, so she maybe wasn't feeling well. Nobody saw her get in his car. She obviously did get in his car. But we don't it's know not if it like, oh, I'm going or... with him. Yeah. But Geraldine, she seems a very naive and trusting young woman. But it's interesting how Jerry took the moment when her friends were on the dance floor to leave with her. And I won't say she was so charmed she forgot her pocketbook. I'd say in such haste 
she forgot her well it makes yes exactly how willingly she really went the fact that they both left their pocketbooks makes me think that they did not leave willingly because if you were going to go home with a guy you'd grab your purse and your stuff and go with him right you wouldn't just like rush out there and leave it right janet she said when she got kicked out of t woody's i just I just want to go outside. Jerry's like, I'll give you a ride home. She's like, no, I just want to go outside. And she may have been flustered and forgot her purse, but she didn't go outside with the intention of leaving with him. And he followed her out. But her friends, they were all having fun and blah, blah, blah. They weren't paying attention to what was going on there. So everything is Jerry's story. And then Geraldine, her friends were not at the table. When she supposedly agreed to leave with him, her friends went out dancing. When they came back, she was gone. And the friend sees her out the window in the truck with him and goes out to find out what's going on with her pocketbook. And Geraldine says, John's going to give me a ride home. Have Ruth call me in the morning. But who knows what got her into that car and whether she was in it willingly. Maybe he even said, come with me or whatever. In any case, the assumptions that they make In the main story, the subhead under the banner headline says, Waterville man also suspect in 1987 death of Janet Brochu. And that story, please confirm that Gerald Goodale is the Jerry who was last reported to see Janet Brochu alive. Ooh, I bet you're all so surprised Mm -hmm. at that revelation. But police aren't as forthcoming about him being a suspect as the headline makes it sound. The story reports Goodale's car was seized in the Brochu case, and he refused a lie detector... And it says, according to previous news stories, and the only previous news story that mentions the lie detector just says he took one, but doesn't say he refused to take one. It doesn't say whether he took one or not. just said he was asked to take one, but didn't know anything more about it. Which annoys me that they cite these previous reports, but there are no previous reports. But anyway... The story says, plagued by evidence problems stemming primarily from the condition of Brochu's body, police were unable to arrest Goodale, Love said. Hmm. I'm going to say it was more like they were plagued by evidence problems from them not looking at Goodale as a more serious suspect and searching his car right away until weeks after Janet disappeared. Yes, I know you need probable cause to get a warrant to search someone's car, but I can't help but believe a motivated cop couldn't have made the case to a judge Mm -hmm. that this girl is gone and this guy was the last one to see her and we need to search the car. They've certainly violated people's civil rights for a lot less. The story speculates that Goodale's arrest may have breathed new life into the Brochu investigation. But all Lieutenant Lovell say is, we're not closing an eye to that possibility. The next day, the Bangor Daily News reported that Deputy Attorney General Fernand La Rochelle said there were some similarities in the broadest sense of the term between the two murders, but they weren't sure they were connected. So, who was Gerald Goodale? Goodale's family was from the Waterville area, and he was born in Winslow. He went to Winslow schools, and he dropped out of Winslow High School after grade 10 and joined the Army, serving for three years. When he was discharged from the army, he moved to Florida to live with his parents who'd moved there a little while before. His parents eventually moved back to Maine, to Waterville, but Jerry stayed behind, got married, and had two kids Mm. who were four and two in 1988. Sometime after he got married and had the two kids, he got divorced and moved back to Maine. In the summer of 1988, he was 29 and living with his parents in Waterville's gritty South End. He had a girlfriend, Donna McKechnie, who didn't live with him, true to the description of John from Pete and Larry's bar, 
Goodale was thin with dark eyes and brown hair. He was six foot tall, not 5'10", which his family said, well, they described him as 5'10", and he, Jerry's oh, six feet, so obviously him. I would never, if somebody asked me how tall somebody was, I would not be able to tell you. I wouldn't either. Well, I mean, I could say he was tall or he was short. Right. Goodale worked in construction, and Donald Cormier had hired him part-time to do carpentry work as Cormier remodeled apartments in the area. Cormier said Goodale was an excellent worker. Mm. He'd known Goodale's family for 20 years. He said, until it's proven different, I can only say good about him because he's been good around us. He's very helpful. If I needed anything done, he'd be right there to help. He was never late to the job, and he was always honest with us. He's been perfect as far as I'm concerned. That's nice. And my response to that is you only know someone's always honest with you if you don't catch them being dishonest. And if they don't have any reason to. Right. And my guess is that Gerald Goodale acted a lot different with bros than he did with women. An employee of the bowling alley on West River Road told the Sentinel that Goodale used to bowl there regularly until late the year before. And, and remember what happened. And like, yeah, yeah. The employee who asked not to be named said Goodale seemed like a loner and only had one friend, Louis Schoenberg. <laughs> the Sentinel tried to track Louis down, but was unsuccessful. Gerald Goodale was arraigned on murder charges in Geraldine Finn's case on Wednesday, August 17th. Under a page one banner headline, Goodale's mother vows he wouldn't hurt a fly. It's a photo of Goodale being perp-walked out of the Somerset County Courthouse after his arraignment. And I think it's in Somerset County because that's where Skowhegan was and that's where her body was found. Rather than Kennebec County where Waterville is. As they left the courthouse, Goodale's mother told the Sentinel, My son did not murder her. He is the most gentle person I know. He would not hurt a fly. He could not have done this terrible thing. His girlfriend of 10 months, Donna McKechnie, said, There is no way Jerry could have done this. I have two daughters, and he loves them dearly. Mm. He helps me so much. There is no way. I have been with him a lot over the last 10 months and have never heard him raise his voice, let alone see him raise his hand to anyone. Although I do think it's interesting, he did live with her for a while, but had recently moved back in with his parents. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying there's anything about that, but usually if things are going well, two people are living together, it's prefer- more preferable to live together than not, unless things aren't going well. His mother said that the morning after Geraldine was murdered, he came in the kitchen smiling as he always does and said, morning, mom, as he always does, and said he was getting ready for work. He didn't act any different. He was always happy, always clowning around. Mm. Everyone loved him, (laughs) which I think it's interesting that she's talking to the past. She said her husband, James, could not bring himself to attend the Uh, arraignment. Jerry's father is hurt, as we all are, but he is really broken up over this. Mm. Jerry Goodale's older brother, John, and I always thought it was funny, Jerry uses his brother's name to pick up a woman he's going to murder, said he had visited his brother in jail the night before. He told me over and over he is innocent, but he didn't have to tell me that because I know it. They, Uh, he means the police, have everything mixed up. They say they are looking for a man five feet, ten inches tall. Jerry is over six feet. They say the Finn woman left with someone driving a blue blazer. Jerry's car was a Ford Bronco. That's a lot smaller than a blazer. And the Bronco had a big tire on the back with a horse on it. Who could miss that? And my feeling is you're a female in your early 20s 
and you see the car and you say to the cops, you know, it was one of those things, you know, probably like, you know, a Chevy Blazer. Yeah. And the cops took it and said, oh, it's a Chevy Blazer. Mm-hmm. Instead of listening to the women and how they talk. John Goodale said his brother did not have a drug or an alcohol problem. He stops in and has a beer with me once in a while, and that's about it, he said. Jerry's mother, Juanita, said of her son's alleged connection as a suspect in the, what the Sentinel calls, apparent murder of <laughs> Janet Brochu. The police questioned me and questioned me about that. I told them where he was, what time he left home, and what time he came home when the girl died. They, the police detectives, told me later that the times did not match up with the murder and that they think another guy did it. Also, they said the woman, Brochu, left with a man in a pickup. Jerry didn't own a pickup then. He had a small car, which they, the police, tore apart. They pulled the wires out and everything. He couldn't use it after that and had to get rid of it. And Jerry's brother, John, said, the police are looking for a fall guy. Jerry didn't murder the Finn woman or anyone else. The family also said that Jerry would not have been riding around naked in a truck, as alleged. He was always a modest person. And Mm. even as a youngster, he wouldn't participate when a bunch of guys mooned someone, John Goodell said. (laughs) And the Sentinel helpfully explains, mooning is a slang (laughs) expression for exposing a person's buttocks in public. So that's um, a lot of wasted ink on what the family had said. And I think it's interesting. I won't go into the whole thing. But what Mrs. Goodell says about the whole timeline from the night Janet Brochu was killed, they did the same thing with Geraldine Finns. The family gave police this timeline that ended up being, and you'll have to listen to the other episode, completely erroneous to try to alibi him. And Mm -hmm. they were just lying and had it all wrong. And it sounds like she did the same thing with Janet Brochu. And apparently the police at the time... I'm sure before state police got involved, bought it. Oh, well, Jerry's mom says he was home. In October 1988, two months after Geraldine Finn was killed, Carlene Grover was killed after she left the Bob Inn Tavern on Temple Street in Waterville Mm. with Michael St. Pierre, who was charged with her murder. It didn't have anything to do with Goodell, but I'm bringing it up for a reason. St. Pierre had thrown Carlene's body into the nearby Kennebec River after he beat her to death. Mm. And by the way, if you ever watch the movie Empire Falls, the Bobbin is the bar they use for some of the scenes. Ooh. It was recently torn down, but it was a classic. It was right near the Sentinel. Classic Waterfield bar. I have a photo of it. I'll put it on our website. A story appeared in the Sentinel on October 8th about the spate of women being killed in Waterville after leaving bars. Carlene's was the third since December just 10 months before, though the story says September. And you'll enjoy this, so I'll read it. (laughs) The headline, Third Death Doesn't Make Crime Wave, police say. Although Thursday's murder of 35-year-old Carlene Grover near the Bob Inn on Temple Street marks Waterville's third night spot-related alleged female slain in a year. And I don't know why they say Alleged female slain? Right. The city is not experiencing a crime wave, according to state officials who track crime statistics and trends. All right. Stephen Bunker, a State Department of Public Safety crime statistician, said that according to a mid-year crime statistics report released Friday, Waterville is certainly not crime city USA. Unquote. (laughs) Bunker's report says that violent crime has decreased by almost 11% statewide during the first half of 1988. The calendar year report, however, includes only murders that happened in Waterville this year, while three deaths have been linked to meetings in Waterville night spots since September 1987, and what they really mean is December. Only two occurred here, according to police records. Mm, So they're counting Geraldine as being a Skowhegan murder. 
In the most recent murder Thursday, the beaten body of Carlene Grover, 35, was found in the Kennebec River. Michael St. Pierre, 20, of Waterville, has been charged with the killing. Janet Brochu and Geraldine Finn were also apparent murder victims within the past 12 months. Waterville Police Chief David J. Veneziano, like Bunker, was quick to point out that the deaths, though linked to night spots here, occurred elsewhere. <laughs> and I'm sorry, just because they found Janet's body in Pittsfield doesn't mean she wasn't killed. Anymore. I know. Veneziano said, however, that homicide is the single most unpredictable and non-preventable crime. Oh, okay. Quote, there's no way you can predict or prevent murder, the exasperated police chief said. There's really nothing we can do about it. (laughs) We shouldn't be laughing, but it's just a ridiculous thing to say. And that's the most frustrating thing. Feniziano said that the three women who have met men in local night spots and were later killed used bad judgment in leaving the bars with strangers. Oh, fuck him. As was the case in two of the three recent killings. I don't know which one the person didn't leave with somebody, but anyway. Expressing the opinion that Waterville is becoming more dangerous as its population grows, actually its population was declining, Feniziano said... Young females should be aware that if they don't know a person, they shouldn't leave a bar and go (laughs) to a person, unquote. Given the unpredictability of homicide, the police chief said it is difficult to analyze why this is happening to us. He said the recent rash of killings is not an indication of a crime wave of major proportions. Quote, people don't need to feel like they have to put an extra lock on their door. It's not like that. (laughs) And I would say instead of focusing on what young women do maybe they should start focusing on what men are doing exactly it's just me a few days later sentinel columnist jerry boyle wrote a column kind of in response to that it was mostly about carlene grover about how she'd been deaf since she was two and so couldn't talk well and lived a rough life, but the people should still care about her. He also took note of Waterville's four murders in the past year, all of them women. Fourth, that we haven't mentioned yet, was Connie Porter Barrett, who was shot by her ex-husband in a parking lot in downtown Waterville in October 1987, about a year before Carlene was killed. And Jerry Boyle writes, in part, Police say that Waterville isn't crime city, despite these three murders in the parking lot execution of Connie Porter Barrett, who was gunned down a year ago this week. And all about the brochure case, police have suspects in custody. Three murder convictions could wrap up these cases in nice, neat packages ready for delivery to the prison in Thomaston. If it works out that way, the police will have done their jobs, but that shouldn't be the end of it. There are questions raised by all of this, and none of them are easily answered or answered at all. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't be asked. Would there have been more outrage in the community if Carling Grover had been a young professional, killed at her home on Mayflower Hill Drive? And Mayflower Hill Drive is like the nicest street in Waterville. It kind of goes up to Colby College. And Mm -hmm. why were young women the victims in all four cases? Is it safe for a single woman to go out in Waterville these days? Or has something changed? What's wrong with a guy who lulls a woman into accepting a drink or a ride and then strangles her? What's going on around here anyway? Is there anything we can do about it? In some places, they've given up asking questions like this. Central Maine isn't one of those places, but it could be. Good cherry. Janet Brochu's murder haunted the Geraldine Finn murder case like a ghost. 
In January 1989, in pretrial motions, Goodell's court-appointed lawyer, Michael Papkin, asked for the case notes on Janet's murder, asking for the police investigation case notes, saying the only reason Goodell was arrested for Geraldine's murder was because police targeted him for Janet's. Attorney General Michael Westcott had denied the request because he said the investigation was still open, so Popkin was hoping the court would intervene. The court didn't. It denied the motion. Later that same month, Goodale's new attorney, James Mitchell, used the fact Goodale was a suspect in Brochu's murder as a reason that he initially lied to police about his whereabouts and other things when they questioned him about Geraldine Finn. Goodale felt he was being harassed and intimidated by police, Mitchell said, and wasn't at the time charged with anything, so his false statements about Finn's murder should be suppressed. Hmm. Judge Donald Alexander also denied that motion. By this point, news reports were saying Goodale had taken at least two lie detector tests in the brochure case and attributing that to court records. They don't say what the results were of the lie detectors. And I mean, it, it shouldn't matter what the results were because, as we know, lie detectors are bullshit. But my guess is if he had failed the lie detector tests in the brochure case, they would have arrested him on that. And also it would have probably been leaked to the press. Right. Goodale was found guilty of Geraldine Finn's murder in May 1989. At his sentencing that June, Maine Deputy Attorney General Fernand LaRochelle said that Goodale had committed, quote, another very serious felony without remorse or regard for the victim's family, unquote, and so he should get a life sentence. He didn't get life, but he got 75 years, which is pretty much the same thing. Goodale was 30 at the time. LaRochelle confirmed to the Morning Sentinel after the hearing that he was talking about Brochu's murder when he said he'd committed hmm. another felony. He told the Sentinel that a pre-sentence investigation found that investigators had very recently questioned Goodale about Brochu's death. Quote, Goodale told them that he didn't do it, but then he knows who did, but he won't say who hmm. it was. I just want to say I'm surprised that La Rochelle didn't get in trouble for making a statement like that. Well, if you listen to the other episode, oh, yeah, there okay. were appeals related to a yes. blah, blah, blah. Okay. By now, there were reports that Goodale had been offered a plea deal that wouldn't have extended his sentence if he confessed to Janet Broge's murder and, you know, and pleaded guilty to Geraldine's as well. La Rochelle and Mitchell both denied that that plea deal was ever offered and... Goodell still would not say that he killed Janet Brochu and was actually saying he was innocent of Geraldine Finn's, that it was, quote, all an accident. Mm. And you have to listen to episode 102 for that bullshit. And that's where things stood as the years, then the decades pass. The only mention of Janet Brochu in the newspaper was in passing in a story about something else or the little in-memoriam ad her parents took out in the Sentinel for several years on the anniversary of her death. My guess is that police figured their man was in jail and for the most part they had stopped investigating. Geraldine Brochu, Janet's mother, died in 2015 at the age of 87, a resident of Mount St. Joseph Nursing Home. Her father, Albert, hung on until he was 91, died Hmm. in January 2021. Four months after his death, on May 14th, 2021, there was finally a big break in the case. A Somerset County grand jury handed up a murder indictment against Goodell for Janet Brochu's murder, and he was arrested. The indictment had actually been ready seven months earlier, but convening the grand jury was delayed because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. By now, Goodell was 61 and had been serving time in the main state prison for Geraldine Finn's death since 1989. 
Colonel John Cody of the Maine State Police said the indictment and arrest were the result of work by state, local, and county investigators, prosecutors, and skilled scientists who oh. never relented in their pursuit of the truth and for justice for this victim, her family, and friends, unquote. Police weren't saying, though, what led to his indictment. Most of the stories, including the Sentinel, don't mention DNA at all. A couple news outlets say that in 2019, when the cold case unit got a hold of it, they tested DNA and it linked to Goodale. They don't say where they got the DNA, you know, where it came from, what it was on. So why aren't they saying? On July 15th, Goodale pleaded not guilty to Brochu's murder. Finally, on March 3rd of this year, 2023, Goodale pled guilty to killing Brochu and was sentenced to 32 and a half years. None of the news media that had stories about this said whether it was consecutive or concurrent. Ugh. I guess it doesn't really matter, but it but does, still. for instance, if the rules change or if he got good time or whatever and was eligible for some kind of parole or to be let out, it does matter. Yeah, and there's some people are trying to bring back parole, right, and I don't right. know if they did, if that would affect people who are in... Right. There was a whole lot of self-congratulating by law oh, enforcement well, that the reporters diligently put every word in their story <laughs> about what a great job they did finally bringing him to justice and how thorough the investigation and everything was, but still a big lack of information on what exactly they did or led to his arrest. Daniel Brochu, Janet's cousin, attended the sentencing and talked to Channel 6, WCSH, afterwards. And I'll put the video of this on our website. Brochu said, Justice was partially served. You know, of course, we all die and we all get judged, right? But again, I forgave him for his part, what he did to me and my family. He said that if Janet's parents were still alive, they would feel the same. He also did his share of cop slobbering, saying... What a wonderful bunch of guys those are, you know? Persistent and persistent. One of them was visiting my uncle and my aunt, meaning Janet's parents, every year, telling them some of the updates they were finding. They couldn't tell them everything because, you know, things get out and that messes everything up. But they kept in touch with them, and I was really happy that they did that, unquote. How wonderful. He added that he hopes that Janet will be remembered as a sweet girl. Jeff Silverstein, Goodale's lawyer, said, We have closure. Mr. Goodale acknowledged his involvement and accepted responsibility, and I think we all move forward from here. Goodale's guilty plea came as a surprise to some in the courtroom, including Ken Quirion, who's with the state fire marshal's office, but in 1988 was on a dive team that looked for evidence in the Sebastocook River. He was all set to testify in the trial, which was going to begin in mid-March. I was like, wow, that changed quickly. I think it shocked everyone, he told Amy Calder of the Morning Sentinel. He said they'd actually found evidence on that first day of the dive, but he wasn't allowed to say what it was. And I don't know if you remember, but Lieutenant Love said that they found an old safe, an old gun, and a man's shoe. Yeah. And I don't know if any of that was this or not. Quirion said, what we found was very important to the case. Mm -hmm. I'd have to believe there was DNA involved. Unfortunately, after the stories about the sentencing, there is nothing. No one has written a story since. I can find no information at all, anywhere, about what the evidence was that sealed the case and led to Gerald Goodall's indictment more than three decades later. There was lots and lots and lots of cops congratulating themselves on what a great investigation it was about finding this evidence and closing this case. 
There was nothing about what it was. I think it will be public information. Maybe no one has asked since then. If we ever find out, I'll let you know. I think there should be a rule that they can't go on and on and on about how great they are, <laughs> showing you how great they are. So a little anticlimactic, but that's the end of Jennifer's murder case after more than three decades. Chat evidence some... they found in 1988 clinched it. I still believe if they had taken it seriously. Yes. When she first disappeared, leaned more on Gerald Goodell, searched his car in the days after, <laughs> talked to people. He did it with Janet, and eight months later, he did it with Geraldine. My guess is he had had some pretty sleazy behavior that yes. he apparently wasn't called on or noticed. <sighs> and that's one of the things that pissed me off about the police chief saying, you know, these girls are getting in cars with guys they don't know. How about men being held to a different standard of behavior? Well, I'm sure that if you talk to the women, if you were investigating it and you went into the bar and talked to women right. who hung out in these bars and showed them his picture, you would find a lot of them saying, yeah, that guy was really creepy. Right. He's trying to pick me up, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I also feel that they're playing their cards so close to the vest instead of saying when they're investigating Janet's Jerry is Jerry Goodall, and yes, we are talking to him, because they do release people's names like yeah. that, Yeah, and then people would say, oh, geez, Jerry Goodall, well, I know some stories about that guy, but by being so secretive and actually implying that Jerry was being cooperative, and they didn't think he was a suspect, and not even saying who he was, and then also making it clear they thought it was her diabetes and all this shit, and then months later they say, if you have any information even if you think it's insignificant, come forward. Well, people have already been conditioned to think it's a whole different thing than what it is. As congratulatory as they are and how persistent they were and they're finding justice and closure, people seem to forget that the fact that they didn't solve that case meant this other girl died. Exactly. So as far as I'm concerned, it's not a big W for them. It would have been a big W in the eight months that they had to solve it. And yes. Jerry Goodall, an initial story about him when he was first arrested, said his neighbor said he was tense and combative and hard to deal with. And then the only other people you have talking about him are that employer guy and his family saying how wonderful he is. It seems to me that investigators didn't try to find out enough about Jerry. As usual, the focus is on what was this young woman doing wrong? Not yes. what were these guys she was with that night doing I'm so sick of that. Oh, women they... shouldn't do. Women right. should be more careful. Of right. what? Right. Of the fucking predators that you're right. not stopping. And who knows how willing Geraldine and Janet were. This assumption that they willingly and merrily got into his car. They, he's and manipulative. Off, who knows you know, what he they... said to them or, right. or how. Or even if he threatened them, like Geraldine seemed to me. Like, kind of, uh, I don't know if naive is the right word. I I feel like he targeted, in fact, if you yeah, listen... Yeah, like sheltered or... Yeah. episode 102, I think I say it. They believe he particularly targeted her, and that was one of the initial charges against him. When he saw her and Pete and Larry's, he targeted her, and they weren't using the term stalked back then. He hunted her. Yeah, uh, like any predator, he surveyed the what was around, and, and he was able to And Janet, she really had no way to get home when she got kicked out of the bar, but refused a ride from him. And that's the last interaction people mm -hmm. actually saw him offering a ride and her saying, no, I just want to go outside. 
And then him following her. And then when he came back to get her purse, telling her friends, oh, you know, I'm going to give Janet a ride home. And who knows at that point, who knows? Maybe there was nobody around in the parking, you know, that could see. And he banged her head against the asphalt and put her in the truck. You know, you don't know. It reminds me. If any of my old friends listen to this, we used to go out a lot. And it was around that same time period, mid to late 80s. Their nickname for me was Loser Magnet. And it was because I always was getting stuck with these. A lot of times it was older men in their 40s. And I was in my 20s that would be sitting there talking and I could not get them because I didn't want to be rude. Which is the mistake a lot of women make. But I think a lot of the assumptions made about Janet and Geraldine are an 80s and male way of looking at things. Even now way of looking at things. Yeah. And I wonder what the real story is. I would love to know what that evidence is. Oh, those poor girls. And now, do you have an NNW? I do. (laughs) Okay. This is why I'm so tired today. This is because of my NNW. I decided to do, it's not a true crime, but it does have some kind of crime elements in it. Well, it does have crime in it. The Netflix series Beef that I stayed up late because I had to finish watching it. It's a 10 part series. It's very good. I'm not going to give any spoilers. It starts with a, they call it a road rage incident, but between two people, Danny Cho, he's played by Stephen Ewan. He was in The Walking Dead, which I never saw. He's very, very good. Very good act. And a woman whose name is Amy Lau. She's played by Ali Wong, who's a comedian, but she is also very good. Basically, these are the two main characters. She is a husband and a daughter. Danny is single. He's not in a good way. He's a contractor, but his business isn't doing well and stuff like that. And his younger brother lives with him, who kind of plays video games and doesn't do much work. He's into bitcoins and stuff. Amy is very successful. She is a high-end plant store. She's about to be bought out by a big company. It seems like it's kind of like a Lowe's company, maybe a little bit higher and then lows and uh, so she's stressed out about this big deal that's gonna come and so they're in opposite ends of a spectrum of wealth and success but they are both very very angry people as you'll see in the first few minutes of the of the first episode i'm gonna go through the thing and then i'll say a couple more things bad reenactments no because it's not a reenactment show, but I will say the acting is very good, except there's one guy, he's not bad, and I did see a review of it that I was reading later that the person really trashed him. I think he's a comedian and doesn't have much acting experience. He's like a stand-up. His name's David Cho, and he plays this cousin Isaac. He's kind of, you know, he's kind of stiff, but in a way it works for his character because his character's kind of a just a dickish guy so it didn't bother me as much as it bothered the reviewer i read so bad reenactments i didn't take any points off narrative cliches i'm taking half a point off there is of course the obligatory sex scene that netflix shows like to have people who are married having flirtations with other people and you're worried that someone's gonna find out blah 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 the cousin's this 'er ne'er-do-well guy and there always seems to be someone like that in the mix there's always somebody that's on the fringe of or a criminal there's always people like i don't have any cousins i know that are criminals i don't know 
that I know of. Right. Racial gender obtuseness, no, not at all. Most of the cast is Asian American. Steven Yoon is actually, he was born in South Korea. The guy that plays his younger brother is, his name is Young Mazino, I think, and he's American of South Korean descent. And Ali Wong, she's American, Vietnamese American, and Chinese American. Joseph Lee, who plays her husband, is Japanese American. And they're all different types of Asian, and they talk about their different cultures in the sh- as part of the show. Not it's not a big part of the show, but the fact that they're Asian is part of who they are, part of their lives, of their daily lives. But at the same time, that's not what it's about. Lack of good visuals, no. It's Netflix. It's well, it's well done. It's well shot, I guess. Missing pieces. I'm going to take half a point off. Mm. There was a couple things, and it could be that I wasn't paying enough attention because I didn't decide to do this. Until, I'm, I'm going to watch it again, I think. But at the very beginning, it was hard to figure out what was going on with Amy and what was going on with Danny. I know in the you end up finding out more as it goes on, but right. I was having hard, trouble following things. There were a couple other things that I wish I knew a little more more about so i'm taking half a point off for that inaccuracy anachronisms i don't think so there might have been a couple things where i was like as if but then i'm like it's fiction so i'm not gonna be all you know worried about that you've got to suspend some disbelief when you're watching something like that the storytelling (laughs) i'm not taking anything off it was really good obviously i honestly couldn't stop watching did you watch the whole thing last night I started whatever day that you came over. I was watching it, but I watched most of it yesterday. Freshness, even though I said there were some of the uh, cliches like they all have, I think it was fresh. It's just very good storytelling. The characters are very well delineated. They feel like real people. And you, when you're watching it, sometimes you can't relate to them and how angry they and what they're doing. But at the same time, part of it is the good acting but the writing too that you can understand why or you kind of get to understand what's behind the way they're acting repetition no and beating the drum no it was kind of the opposite of beating the drum it wasn't like a morality tale or anything it wasn't like certain people did bad things and got stuff happened whatever no so amy's husband's name is george the woman that plays his mother her name's pat yasataki her character's name is fumi she is so good a certain type of woman she reminded me kind of of my mother-in-law the guy that plays danny there's something about him from the first time you see him you really can at least i could really kind of relate to him or something there's something about his acting too he's really he's just really good ali wong it's hard to get a handle on her but i feel like for her character her characters can be kind of phony so it kind of works i just think it's really good i'm gonna watch it again even though i know how it ends it kind of the ending is i'm not gonna give a spoiler but they left it i think they left it so they could do a second season if they want or it can be the ending i highly recommend it i gave it a nine i'll have to watch it everybody watch it it's one of those things you keep thinking about right it's kind of like bad sisters where right. all this stuff keeps happening and you're like ah so anyway so that's our episode so yes thank you everybody and i'm doing something next time and as usual i do not know what i'm doing well i usually cut out when you say that sometimes i leave it in i'm sure you'll come up with something i actually came up with stuff 
just looking at the newspapers from I know that's what I did. 1988 there were things I'm like wow that I know be- I, what I do is save them as a pdf I clip yeah, them yeah that's what I do so thank so, you everyone for listening good night good night okay well why don't we just start okay want to do that yes all right Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. The podcast. You're supposed to say the podcast you would do, and then I say if you had nothing better to do. No, I don't. I say the podcast, and then you say you would do if you had nothing better to do. I don't think so. I think so. I think so. We've been saying this for like okay. Six I'll years. do it your way. Well, no. Uh, first, I need to see if I'm right. Okay. Where the hell is? Okay, wait. Let me see. Um, I'm gonna go back. Do any one of our 142 episodes? Hi, this is Maureen Milliken, and this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff, the podcast you would do if you had nothing better to do. <laughs> and there was big, big, birthday. What? Why is my memory so bad? Why can't I stop it? Things are getting clearer. I feel free. Shut up. Yellow pole in front of our house. And I'm like, when did that show up? And dad's like, that's always been there. I'm like, no. Yes. It it wasn't really a pole. It was one of those covers on the table. Should we start over or are we actually doing the podcast right now? I don't know. Why don't we start over? Okay. Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. <laughs> a podcast. What? You, you can't tell what you just said. Okay, let, let's start over. You know, my early onset senility, it might be funny to you now. No, is... I'm, it's just one of those laughing things, like the one we had that ruined Jimmy's wedding. Yeah. And not for us, but for his mother-in-law. It's my voice. I just think I have oh, a I have a thin it's raspy raspy like nasally kind of voice that charms. Have we started? Should we start over? Yes, 